Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Jacqueline Gottlieb, who is Professor of Neuroscience and the founder and director of the Research Cluster on Curiosity at Columbia University. Dr. Gottlieb studies the neural mechanisms of attention and their relationship with information processing, including learning, decision-making, and curiosity. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you very much, Gil. Very happy to be yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for doing this on a, on a weekend. Uh, and so I want to start with one of your older papers uh, entitled Intrinsically Motivated Oculomotor Exploration Guided by Uncertainty Reduction and Conditioned Reinforcement in Non-Human Primates, in which you say intelligent animals have a high degree of curiosity, the intrinsic desire to know, but the mechanisms of curiosity are poorly understood. Uh, a key open question, you say, pertains to the internal valuation systems that drive curiosity. Um, so you ask, what are the cognitive and emotional factors that motivate animals to seek information when th- this is not reinforced by instrumental rewards? So, so that is a very interesting, uh, interesting area. So you say animals are curious, and I think the ones that we typically see appear to be very curious. <laughs> Um, but but the, the question is, why are they curious, even though there is no sort of tactical rewards coming to them, um, and perhaps even negative uh, rewards coming to them by being curious, right? So that's the question. Yes. And, and so you want to talk a bit about, about that? I think you, I know that you have run some experiments in this area. Yes. Um, well, so let's, before we get into experiments, I want to answer your question directly. Yeah directly, because there actually is a very good answer to it that I think when it's pointed out, um, most people would agree with it, but it's overlooked, uh, has been overlooked way too long, even in in our fields, in psychology and neuroscience, and also I think in economics. Um, So the reason that animals absolutely need curiosity 
is the fact that the rewards in an environment are not given to them, yeah. right? So, so we can start from the basic fact that all animals need to survive and we need primary rewards to survive, right? We need food and water and we need safety. Um, and it, it, absolutely you can describe, and, and there's a long tradition in psychology and neuroscience and, and um, it, it, you know, just saying that we, all, all the co cognitive apparatus is geared to secure those rewards uh, that, that are necessary and sufficient for our survival and for the survival of the species. But the problem is that the rewards are not given to us in the environment on a silver platter, right? So this is sometimes hard to imagine um, because in the, our daily lives, we live in artificial environments that we have made, we as a human civilization, have made very rich in rewards. Right, so we have safety. I'm sitting here in my house that has heat, and we have food um, that is plentiful for us. And so, so it's a very reward-rich environment. But we can think, for example, I mean, think of the like primitive hominid on a on a big white big plain. Right, the person is living in caves and is hunting, and um, um, you know, it, it you he, the hominid can look out there and there really are not that many rewards available to him, right? So there might yeah. be apples on some tree or some fruit or some berries, but they're hard to see. He might have to climb, might have to go through dangers to, to get them. Um, there might be grass somewhere, but that grass is not usable unless the person learns how to use it, how to domesticate it, how to grow it. There might be some animal around, but that animal is not use usable unless we the person learns how to domesticate it. So the whole point of this is that is that a reward rewards not only are hard to get, but they must be created and invented. Right. So learning is primary, right? So before being so before knowing that there you know there might be some value in understanding how uh, some wild grass grows. You don't know what the value of that is in the future because you just don't know you cannot anticipate it so you must be have some mechanism to first be motivated to ask the question hmm. right anyway right. i think i think right so so curiosity is so that's the reason why we need curiosity yeah so 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 i i understand so fifty thousand years ago early homo sapiens um, this this makes a lot of sense. Um, they had to explore. Yeah. They had to be curious to survive, really, right? Uh, they had to develop a portfolio of options, so to speak, um, you know, in anticipation of various um, uh, issues that they would be dealing with in the future. So, so developing those options, being curious, was a necessary condition for survival. So it, it should have had some selection advantages. Uh, but as you say, in the modern context, um, at least from an environmental perspective, we don't need that. Uh, we have sort of controlled that uncertainty now, right? Um, you know, things are not uncertain from a food perspective. Uh, from a living condition perspective, so we don't we don't necessarily have to be curious there. Um, but but going to animals, then 
so this is a systematic process. So what you're finding in, in monkeys and other uh, animal models, this process exists there too, right? It's not just a human thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that there is a big difference though. So, so, yeah. so maybe this big, okay, so, 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 so I emphasize the, this the kind of, I would say what, what I described is maybe curiosity with a capital T. So I think what I described is maybe the highest form of curiosity, which is like, you, you know, you really investigate a process. Like, for example, you know, how does grass grow? That's pretty much a scientific question. Or how does fire work, right? Those scientific questions. And I think that maybe that's the highest form of curiosity um, that we do today, scientific research. Um, uh, but, but I think that there are smaller forms of curiosity. And I like, I, I like to, <laughs> um, the people, people, scientists sometimes try to break processes, put, put, make little boxes and think about one topic <laughs> in one box and another topic in another box. I like to think across boxes. So yeah. I think that something, a behavior as simple as looking around your environment and just paying attention to different things, um, if you think about it from a certain point of view, it's also information demand, a demand for curiosity. It's, it's a kind of curiosity, and you might call it curiosity with a, with a little c. And, and, yeah. and it's curiosity insofar that you look at your environment and you don't just look at only the thing that you're doing right at that moment. You, you, get, you, you get information, you're receptive to information and you even selectively select information that is not really relevant to you at that moment. And so I think that animals have that sort of curiosity. So they have curiosity with, this, with a little c. I think that their cognitive machinery and probably the internal representations are not as developed as those of humans. And so they obviously cannot engage in, in things like scientific research because they just don't have the, I'm not sure exactly there's a big debate about what that is that they don't have, maybe causal reasoning or elaborate representations of events or whatever. Uh, so, so they don't do that. But I think that they do have this investigative drive to just know what's going on. Yeah, so... Yeah. You know, in some sense, um, it's a strategic behavior, right? So if, uh, as you say in the paper, um, one motivation is to, is to reduce uncertainty. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I would think that is sort of a strategic behavior. In, in other words, I have to invest into reducing uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I am doing that um, in anticipation of something in the future. And I find that fascinating that animals, animals do that. Um, so, so you know, is that the right way to think about it, Jackie, or it's something different? No, 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 that, that, that is the right way to think about it. And uh, you're also correct to be fascinated by it because it is, even in neuroscience, it's a new phenomenon. And, and we, uh, we don't really have good models to describe it. Um, so, so it's a very rapidly emerging field of research. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, uh, so, so in the in the experiment that you referred to, 
um, what, what, what is happening there. So there I'm testing a form of curiosity with a little c. It's a very simple form of curiosity. Um, so what is happening there is I give, um, um, I give an animal, um, you know, I, I give him a signal that um, on, on every trial, so the, the animal makes, does trials that each last two or three seconds, and he does many of those um, over a couple of hours. Um, on every trial, uh, it can anticipate that there is, he, he might get a, a drop of juice after three seconds, or he might not get a drop of juice. It's random. It's like a lottery. Um, and all that's happening, I, I give the animal a few visual stimuli. The animal is free while he's waiting for the juice to look around on a computer screen. And on the, on the computer screen, there are uh, stimuli. If he looks at particular locations, he can get a cue that tells him whether he will get the juice or not. Okay? So in other words, the animal is in a condition of uncertainty at the beginning of the trial. It, uh, it, it could be perfectly free to not to just wait and get the reward for three seconds. But it turns out uh, that, uh, that, that monkeys want, they, they are looking for that early signal because they want to resolve their uncertainty as early as possible. So they're in a sense putting effort into it because they're searching through, through those stimuli that are on the screen. And the question, and the big question that um, in, is why would they exert effort if they really don't get any more rewards, right? The, the, the reward arrives no matter what the animal does. Uh, he, they, he doesn't need to look at anything. Uh, and yet it turns out that animals are motivated to, uh, to do this. And this, as simple as this behavior is, we, we really struggle to put it in a, in a computational model uh, because all of our models act on the assumption that animals do something if they gain a reward. So it's always a cost-benefit trade-off, and the benefit is always a primary reward, like a drop of juice or water or one of those things that are necessary for survival. Now, here, the animal doesn't, it gains no reward, um, and yet is exerting, is paying a cost in terms of effort. So yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So so these these are monkeys, yeah. right? Uh, that, that is the so so the one. I guess one assumption is that the costs are positive. In other words, would the monkey considered to be consider this to be sort of a game in which the monkey gets some utility by engaging? Well, that I behavior? mean, so by almost by definition of utility, since the monkey does it, there must be some yeah. utility. Right. So and, yeah. and it raises yeah. the question, awesome. what is that utility? So that's the main question. What is it that the monkey is getting by exerting that effort? Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, gamification, you know, obviously for humans uh, is, a, you know, is a big way that uh, companies get to people. Yeah. Uh, and if the monkey is looking at this, you know, sort of a yeah. game. Um, then the behavior could be quite different. Yeah. Right. In other words, it's not. Um, so it's not necessary. I guess. I guess it is still trying to reduce uncertainty, right? So it's taking some action to reduce uncertainty yeah. strategically. Yeah. 
And, and we see the same behavior in humans. You have another paper here, uh, Intrinsic Motivation, Curiosity and Learning, Theory and Applications in Educational Technologies. Yes. Uh, so it's a book it's chapter, a book. I think. Um, and you say the chapter studies the bi-directional causal interactions between curiosity and yes. learning and discusses how understanding these interactions can be leveraged in educational technology applications. You want to talk a bit about uh, that? <laughs> so I hope I'm not disappointing you too much. The educational technology part is mostly the work from uh, of the of, of one of my collaborators. So I am a co-author on that paper. Collaborator Pierre yeah. Boudet is the one who works on educational technologies. But I can give you the gist of how people think about this. So in the paper, so so that paper is mostly about humans. And, right. and in humans, again, we're looking at a more elaborate form of curiosity. So in the task that I described with monkeys, it's all about like you get one observation, it reduces your uncertainty, and then you're done. Then you start the next trial, right? So it's really these episodes that have nothing to do with each other. Um, right. In people, though, um, the interesting question is uh, what you want is you want to build up. So in people, you engage in learning. So you take sustained observations, one after the other after the other, and they are related to each other because they, they help you learn. Right? So I know Pierre Boudet, for example, is, is working with uh, teaching kids um, arithmetic, things like addition and multiplication. And there you have you know, repeated interactions that build on each other. So what is, and, and the same problem, and there the problem is, um, you know, what in, how do people select, how do people become interested in some activity or another, right? And so, um, um, so, so that is even the more difficult problem because you have to ask, so there are many questions, many activities you could choose in an environment. Let's say if you didn't have the school and you're, in an open field. Again, let's let's think about the primitive human again. Let's say the human is very curious and they want to understand stuff. But what will they study? There's so many topics of study that right, so many questions they could ask. And many of these questions in the real world are nonsense questions. So they're unlearnable. So let's say somebody might become curious, like, will, can, will the cloud predict? Will the color of the cloud in the sky predict how the grass grows or predict if I'll see some animal tomorrow on the sky, right? So, <laughs> meh, you know, maybe yes, but it's like pretty much random, right? The relation is pretty much random. Um, so how do people know, you know, it's in the real environment, it's important both, both to want to investigate, but also not to labor in vain on random questions because if you do that right. you you just waste all your time and like achieve nothing so um so 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 you see how um anyway so 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 what um here if people in artificial intelligence think like um Pierre Boudet is one among them is that a good way to to, to resolve this, uh, to avoid this randomness trap, um, is to be sensitive to what's called learning progress, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea is that let's say you start an activity and you kind of monitor if you're learning, 
right? Have I learned anything? Yeah. And if you're learning, if you sense you're learning something, you stick with it. So, but if you sense you're not learning, then you disengage and go do something else. Um, so, right. so, right. so if you sense you're learning, so the idea is not, that not only reducing uncertainty, like at one shot, one in small little packets, that's rewarding, but also a sense that you're making progress. So, in a sense, you, you, if you want reducing uncertainty slowly in a cumulative fashion, that also gives an internal reward. That's the idea, and um, and 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 Pierre has been working on these. Um, methods of instruction that are tailored to the individual abilities of uh, kids. So if kids learning arithmetic, um, he developed these programs that um, where, where the kid can interact with the pro program and solve problems, small problems, and the program kind of adjusts the difficulty of the problem. And the, and the pro program keeps track of how well the kid is doing and it can compute the learning progress. And it adjusts the difficulty up or down in order to keep, keep the kid in a region of learning where he's learning a little bit uh, so things are not too difficult for him or too easy, right? So that's, that's the idea, that's the application. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, this is not in the paper, Jackie, but I want to get your perspective on this. So, you know, education systems sometimes tend to be highly yeah. prescriptive. And that is true in the U.S. today. You know, um, the physics books that I used 25 years ago is, you know, same books my, my daughter, 35 years ago, my yeah. daughter uses. Um, same physics books and same examples and it's highly uh, prescriptive. Mm -hmm. And so in some sense, educational systems are set up to reduce uncertainty yes. for kids. And by implication, um, you're also reducing curiosity, um, if I understand you correctly. And so, you know, Finland and other Scandinavian countries have moved away from this idea that you have physics one, physics two, physics three type education but rather let the, let the student design what he or she wants to learn. Um, and, and essentially uh, bringing uh, uncertainty back <laughs> into what people are attempting to learn. Uh, what, what, is, what is your perspective on that? Um, well, yes and no. Yes and no. I think that the, yeah. the, um, the question is complex and, and I think that we have to be very careful um, in principle, I agree. I, I agree with uh, very much with one thing that you said is that yes, we have to sustain that sense of curiosity, and that sense is, I believe, is the awareness that there are questions. Um, I think that what happens. Um, I think that what happens. So the the trap that the, the, the problem that you seem to be, to be hinting on, and I agree it's a problem, is that when somebody learns, let's say you have a textbook of physics and you get through it in your course. And then you think, oh, that's it. It's done, I'm done. Uh, there's nothing more to ask, right? Okay, I think that's yeah. the problem because even, because there's always something to ask. Um, 
there's, there's never an end. I mean, it's not like you, you, you know, you learned everything because you got through a chapter, a couple of chapters of a physics textbook. So the t I think the teacher's role is to keep awareness, keep reminding people of the questions, of how many questions there are and how much you don't know, right? Um, okay, so that, so in that sense, I totally agree that I think we probably ought to be doing more, more of this, reminding people of the questions. Um, but I also yeah. want to speak against another way in which what you said might be interpreted that I don't think is totally productive, uh, which is that we don't want to prescribe things. We don't want to teach kids. Just throw kids in a classroom and let them learn on their own, right? Discover things. And I think that that goes to the opposite extreme of making the task too difficult for kids, which also inhibits curiosity. Because, because, right, I mean, look, I mean, what's in a physics textbook took humanity hundreds of years to discover, thousands of years. You can't possibly expect every first grader to discover that on their own, right? Or even a reduced version of that. So I think that teachers have an in incredibly important role to, to teach, uh, to, to absolutely teach in a prescriptive fashion. And also by teaching, I think, it allow, the best form of teaching allows kids to become more curious because it allows them to ask more sophisticated questions, right? Um, if you don't understand, if you don't know that there is such a thing as DNA, you can't be curious about the DNA. But if your teacher explains to you how the DNA works, you can then ask more and more sophisticated questions. And I think that when education works well, this is indeed what happens and kids become more and more curious. Um, so the trick is to, I think the trick is to not, to re remind people of how many questions there are left. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So the, the goal of the education um, has to be really kind of imparting the idea uh, of information seeking and hypothesis yeah. testing yeah. really. Uh, and so part of it is process and and it's really most of it is process in the sense that any content that's imported is going to be expiring in the future. Uh, there is no field where we know for sure <laughs> anything, Yes, I, uh, I would argue. Agree. Content is time-stamped, right? It is not going to be relevant, say, 20, 30 years. Oh, sorry, now. what is not going to be relevant? The, the content, the process yes. will be, right? Yes. The process yes. Uh, yes. can be stable. Yes. But the information yes. is going to change. Um, and so curiosity in that context in education is, it's like you say, is giving people a yes. process that they can utilize in all fields, you know, without any specific adherence to a, you know, uh, to a textbook or yes. anything like that. Very much agree with that. Yes. Yes. I, so, no, yeah. I, I very much agree with that. And I, um, I don't know if you were going to ask about this, um, but, um, 
um, yeah, it, it is a, a process and a skill that I, I just wanted to highlight um, that how, how complex this is and why it's actually so important what you said. Um, be, so, so because, so, right, so it's a skill of, first of all, teaching people to assume that there always are questions and to look for the questions, right? Yeah. And I think many, many people forget, forget that because, like you said, I mean, we live very comfortable lives, many of us, and and we can get by very well just doing our routine thing, you know. And so, if you, so I think we need to kind of work against that in a sense and train ourselves to look for the questions and kind of generate our excitement. So that's number one: look for the questions. Number two, I think that many people. Even if you say, if they identify a question, uh, it's a daunting process to even know how to get an answer or how to investigate it. Um, how, would I, how would I find out the answer? So, you know, I mean, in many cases, you just kind of, you know, Google, Google it or read a Wikipedia article or so on and so forth. But for example, things like a kid, a high schooler writing a scientific paper, um, you know, that becomes more complicated. It's a bit of a research process. And there's so many, so open-ended and so many ideas. And, you know, like the process of, of putting your ideas together and, and making an outline and putting your ideas in order, it's a daunting process. So I think that that needs also to be taught in school um, so that kids do not become, later on in life, you don't become intimidated by the research process, so, so to speak. Um, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking, Jackie, that, yeah. So, um, asking questions could be considered costly. And so one goal of education, at least from my perspective is, uh, to, to make asking questions, uh, rewarding, not costly. Right. Um, because asking questions could be quite costly. It is very yeah, absolutely. Very much. Yeah. 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 So, so, so Jackie, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, I will talk about some of your recent okay. papers Thanks. in this area. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, so we are back. Uh, Jackie, we are talking about curiosity and how curiosity both in animals and humans could be considered um, as a way to reduce uncertainty, so sort of a strategic behavior uh, looking forward um, and really investing into reducing uncertainty by being curious. Um, it might have had some selection advantages uh, for humans, but also uh, for animals much earlier. Uh, but we see that all around us today. You have a paper a more recent paper in which uh, you say neurons encode information sampling yeah. based on decision uncertainty during natural behavior. 
and animals actively gather information that's relevant for learning or actions. However, the mechanisms of active sampling are rarely investigated. So uh, you mean by by sampling, you mean uh, here uh, to go out and get information to try to understand or try to figure out how to reduce that uncertainty? Yes. Um, What I mean specifically by sampling is is a very mundane act, which is the simple act of moving your eyes to look at something. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a, it's a behavior, like, it's such a trivial thing. It's kind of like, you know, an apple falls from the tree. Like, okay, we all take it for granted. And we even study these movements of the eyes in the lab a lot. Um, but we kind of forgot, but, but, but we've never asked, like, why do people look to one thing or another? Or why does a monkey look to one, one light versus another? Um, and that, if you want to answer that question, then that is exactly the question of information sampling. Because by looking at a light, you, you sample some sort of photon uh, yeah. versus another. And, and, and they, how, so how does the brain make that selection? What to, what to look at? Um, right. So that's what I call sampling. Yeah, so the, the neuroscience, uh, obviously, I don't know much about this, Jackie, but the neuroscience underneath this is really fascinating, right? So the, the brain is storing away information. Presumably, it's doing some analysis of historical data. And, uh, and then it has to make, like you say, a selection decision to sample further. Yeah. So it has an ex-ante expectation of a probability, right, of some, some information gain. Yes. Uh, from that activity. Yes. And what, what you are saying here is that that is, that is done systematically by the, by the brain? Yes, I'm saying, okay, yes. I'm saying that that, um, or something, yes, something like that has to be done systematically by the brain. Um, and it's a mystery um, how it's done. Um, so, you know, if you think um, mathematically, if you, if you were going to um, build a robot or a machine that, got, that has sensors, and then you, you have to build some sort of algorithm to control those sensors um, and, and, tell, and make the machine sample some sort of signals versus others, um, you could, in principle, we, we have a theoretical framework that we know about, about how you would optimally control those sensors. And, yeah. and that is Bayesian theory, pro- probabilistic inference, right? So, right. So, 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 so Bayesian theory tells us, and, and it's a very simple formula. I mean, it's, I think it's one of the most powerful formulas we have. Um, it, it tells us how you should, so, so given that we don't know anything for certain, we have to assign probabilities to various hypotheses. So, so the Bayesian theory says, well, you, you, you take an observation and you update your beliefs about uh, certain things. And you should update those beliefs uh, based on two things. So first is your previous beliefs, because you always have some ex-ante um, hypothesis, estimation. Yes. That's the first one. So that, and, and the uncertainty of those previous beliefs. And the second is on how reliable the information is. So some signals are more reliable than others. For example, like, you know, you might think that the weather forecast 
from one channel is more reliable than than another one. And in the in, in the Bayesian formula, that's called the likelihood or the validity of signal. Um, and um, and those two factors, and the Bayesian formula tells you that there's a very precise way in which you should combine those two probabilities. So again, one is your prior uncertainty, and the other is the validity of the information that you have. Right. So, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so the experiments uh, show you that um, both humans and animals do that? Right. Um, so, uh, so not quite. So we, we started from this Bayesian hypothesis because it's, it's a, because a very clear hypothesis and, and it tells you how, right, and you can, you can estimate how much information, how much uncertainty you can expect to reduce from all this, anything you could possibly sample. Um, and, and what we find is that when you test this, that um, monkeys and, and humans, they do. They are sen they are sensitive to those two variables of uncertainty and validity, but they don't combine them precisely in the way that the Bayesian formula tells you. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, and, and what happens is that we're still working on this. But what seems to be happening is that, first of all, humans um, and and monkeys, we get too much information. So let's say I put you in a condition in which I, I, I tell you exactly what will happen. You have no uncertainty and, and you have good reason to believe me because I, I'm always, I was reliable. So I say, you know, for example, I can tell our monkeys, you will definitely receive a reward. Um, they still gather information, right? They still expend um, energy in order to gather information, even though that information is totally redundant because they knew ahead of time. <laughs> so that's right. So that seems totally non-optimal, right? Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, it's very reliable. And also, we see this when we ask people to pay. So you can do these experiments where I say, you know, do you want to pay to get advanced information about something? Um, people will pay money even when they know in advance the information <laughs> is redundant. The people overpay. So that's that's number one. Number two is that. Let's say you have two sources of information in your environment. One is a valid predictor, and the other, let's say, is much less valid. So it gives you a lot of random and wrong information. A, ba a perfect Bayesian would never, ever look at the source that is less valid. They will always pick the best source. Right. Uh, but people and monkeys seem to distribute their choices. So they, they mostly look at the best uh, source, but they also look at the one that they know is not so good sometimes, mm. right? Um, so, so instead of what we call that is, is they, they, people, uh, they seem to match, right? So they sample the sources in proportion to their validity rather than maximizing, meaning you go to the best one all the time. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Um, so those, I think, are fascinating, but, uh, you know, you, they, they, if you look at them, they look at sort of like sort of bugs in the system. But it's really fascinating to, to investigate why they happen and if they really are bugs. I mean, could they be useful in some circumstances? Yeah, yeah that, that is really interesting. You know, so in, in economics, um, especially in business context, um, so we have to, we have to value... Uh, 
um, you know, intellectual property, R&D programs and things like that. So this is a sequence of decisions yeah. uh, that a, uh, an entity would make, whether it's an individual or, a, or an organization, a sequence of interacting decisions. So when we do the, the valuation process at each decision point, we assume humans make optimum robust decisions you know uh, that, that's the assumption that we make to come up with a market-based value for that uh, for for that uh, intellectual property position mm-hmm. now if there is as you say um, there are bugs in in human decision processes mm-hmm. um, then we have to think about that <laughs> it's it's not like humans are making optimum decisions. So, you know, we do simulations and dynamic programming, stochastic optimized control at those decision points. And what you're saying is that humans don't actually do that. Uh, Yes, I think that humans don't actually do that. I think that humans could do, uh, make the optimal decision in some circumstances, but, um, but they don't. There are many factors that would bring them down, that would introduce um, yeah, suboptimality in this process. Um, you know, I think that, um, and we're still working. I mean, I mean, there are many reasons. Like um, one important reason might be that we. Um, so this process of eye movements or attention. This is really how we are built. This is how we gather information every day, every second of our lives. And and this is by very fast switches, we sample, like we look here, and then we look there, and we look there, we look there. And the cost of each one of this, each sample, if you want, is not very big, right? I mean, it's not a huge effort to move your eye or to look around. Um, And it could be that this is what we're doing, because the cost is not too big, we can afford to be kind of random, kind of not perfect, not, not super optimal and waste some of our resources because it's not so, so many resources. Um, and also um, there is a big cost if you want to make the process optimal, that actually requires effort for some reason. I mean, it's still a mysterious process, but to think, okay, now I need to pay this much for this information because it's valid and because I have uncertainty, I think that mm-hmm. controlling this optimal control thing is actually very costly mm-hmm. uh, for some reason. So anyway, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so two, two, yeah. Interesting, two interesting things there for me, Jackie. One is uh, the eye movements, it might be more costly to keep the eye um, you know, it's sort of in one position. So the the, the random uh, movement and random accumulation of information might be less costly yes. for the human. Yes. It's a nat- more, more natural process, right? Yes. Uh, and the other, as you say, um, the marginal benefit uh, gotten from, you know, get the point, the marginal benefit is not sufficiently high yes. to actually spend a lot more effort. Once you get to the next best solution, you're sort of, you know, you're just going to settle down there. Yes, I think so. And and, and so it's interesting, you know, from a a neuroscience perspective, Mm -hmm. this appears to be a heuristic. So the brain is, 
Yeah, I don't know. Let me ask this question. Is the, is the brain actually making that decision in the sense that the incremental effort that it needs to spend, uh, you know, it's, it's, too, it's higher than the marginal benefit that you're going to get. So it's, it's just going to stop. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I think, yes. So I think that uh, what the brain does is not, is not like what you would do. So see, like if, if, you talked in, you know, evaluating processes, evaluating R&D, evaluating whatever. I mean, if you're in a firm, you, you, do, you, you, are, uh, you are faced with this problem of information maximization and you can solve it explicitly, right? Uh, but it's a very laborious thing to, to solve it explicitly, but you can. Uh, but the, I don't think the brain does anything like this. Um, I think that what we do instead is something like this. Uh, first of all, there is a, a matter of learning a task. So let, let's talk about regular daily behavior, like, you know, like driving a car, I think it's a great example. Uh, mm -hmm. Learning to drive. And if you remember how things were, how things felt when you were a beginning driver, beginner driver, I remember this because it was terrible experience. <laughs> I learned back and I, I had to learn on a manual, on a stick shift. I thought, oh my God, there are so many things to pay attention to. I can't believe that anybody can do this. You know, there's the, there's, there's the clutch and there's the, the wheel and there, there are pedestrians and there are people and there are mirrors and oh my God, this is like insane. Okay. Okay. Um, and what happens with time, like with practice, you build a routine and the whole process becomes super efficient. And not only your movements become efficient, but your information gathering, your attention is part, learning where to direct your attention is part of learning a routine for the task. Hmm. And so, you know, and, and people have shown this explicitly, like the eye movements of novice drivers, when they look down the road, they're all over the place and very inefficient. Hmm. When you learn how to drive, everybody's eye movements become much more stereotyped. You know, like you look ahead at the curve where if you need to, to turn. If there's a turn, you, you look at the point of maximal curvature. You look at particular points at particular times. So, so you have really learned an attentional routine. So I think that part of learning the task is you learn the predictors. So you, like imagine a visual image that comes at you with like a million stimuli that you can't process. Um, when you learn a routine, you have simplified that image and you only highlight some predictors in it, right? So when you drive, for example, drive on a busy road, your brain kind of has kind of prioritized for you, let's say the traffic lights, the intersections, the pedestrians, a few things that are most relevant to you at that point, at that time for, for the task, for driving. So now there's still several of those and you have to select one, you know, you, now, now you look at the traffic light, now you look at the pedestrian, Accord, like a moment by moment, you have to select one. And I think that this final selection is kind of mediated by uncertainty somehow. So like, yeah. you know, right? Imagine like, let's say you have a stretch of road that is empty and you can see, uh, you can see, you know, it's empty and you just go on autopilot, right? then your mind kind of disengages and your attention probably shifts around, you attend to some irrelevant things at that point. But then let's say 
oh, you arrived at a big intersection or the traffic becomes uh, bigger. Then you have a lot more uncertainty because you don't know what's going to happen next. You can't predict so far in advance. And then that there is a signal, maybe it's arousal, maybe it's like norepinephrine that gets released. And that has the effect of focusing more on those predictors. So those things that you already prioritized to some extent, now they become even more prioritized and, and it really focuses your attention. Yeah, I, I was wondering, Jackie, so when things get routine though, yeah, uh, it also implies that uh, it reduces creativity, it reduces curiosity. And uh, so uh, couldn't you apply, you know, the, the, the driving analog? Yeah. We talk about this in our lives, right? So yeah. if our lives get very routine, yeah, then it becomes very mechanistic, right? Yeah. Yes, it becomes very mechanistic. So there's a very interesting... Okay, so when you drive, like in the example of driving, yeah. you have uncertainty. Like, you know, if you reach an intersection, you have uncertainty, right? Because you don't know. You have to pay attention. You, have, you need information to see what to do. Um, but that kind of uncertainty, you know how to resolve, hmm. right? You know, it's, you can call it, and people call it expected uncertainty. Um, you know how to resolve. You know, like if you look at the traffic, you're going you're gonna to resolve it. So... So now curiosity is a condition where you have uncertainty and it's not so clear how to resolve it, mm. right? Or it's not, you don't have a routine that can reduce your uncertainty immediately like, like it is in driving. Um, right. and, and, and it's one of the questions that I, very, I often ask to my you know, computer science colleagues and and they're surprised by the question because it's not a question that people have asked in our field, but it's exactly this like, you know, I have uncertainty when I do very routine behaviors. And I also have uncertainty when I'm curious about something. And formally, mathematically, those might be the same thing, but psychologically they feel so different, right? Mm -hmm. When I'm driving, I'm not really excited. You can't say you're curious about what color the, is the traffic light. No, you just, you look at, your traffic light resolves your uncertainty, but you're not really curious about it, right? So that's a very different psychological feeling than being curious about a source of uncertainty. So what is really the difference there? We don't know yet, but it's a, it's a great question. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like um, in the former case, you already have an app for it yes. in your brain. Yeah. In the latter case, you don't have an app yet. Exactly, exactly. You don't have an app. Um, right, yeah. right, right, right. You have to invent an app, and I think it's the invention process or the discovery process that makes it exciting and evokes that feeling. Right. Yeah. So that that goes to um, you, you know curiosity, as as you mentioned before, um, sort of a portfolio building exercise. So if you're curious, you're going to get more and more apps. Yeah. And some of them are going to be useless to you. Uh, but some of them could be quite valuable in the future. Yes. And so curiosity could be considered, I'm just making this up, Jackie, yeah, yeah. <laughs> could be considered sort of an app um, garnering exercise. You know, you're getting these apps, you're storing them away, and at some point, one of them become very useful to you. Yes, I totally love this. Yes, I totally love this. <laughs> and then you have to ask, 
uh, you can ask, you can get even like ask the meta question. So yeah. even people who are curious and ask a lot of questions, um, they don't ask questions about everything. Nobody can ask questions about everything. Even the set of questions that a person asks, even that's a small set. So you have made a selection there too, right? Um, you know, I'm curious about animals and fish and plants, um, but I'm not that curious about cars. And I am, my, my husband is like super curious about cars and he knows a ton of stuff about cars. When he starts talking about cars, my eyes glaze over. You know, I think I'm a curious person, <laughs> but not really about cars, <laughs> you know? There's certain, <laughs> certain topics that really don't get me going. Um, so, so what is that about? So I think that we have to think of, I, I think that people have sort of this broader set of how you conceive yourself as a person. I guess that's your interest. And maybe that has to do with the set of things that you could possibly be doing. Not, not, not necessarily something you're doing now or even something that you will be doing in five years, but a set of things that you could possibly be doing. So mm -hmm. I think we all have that in the back of our minds, you know? So I think that like, let's say when I retire, um, I could see myself as learning about entomology, learning about insects, or you know, going to some take, going on some marine life cruise to learn more about marine life. Um, but I can't really see myself that uh, you know that I would learn to to do car racing or to you know, um, um, and so and so I think that that certain things you know you. We all have these broader set of interests that we may not express at any given explicitly, but they're on the back of my minds as uh, of our of, of our minds as potential potential affordances that we might use in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's it's sort of modern humans have specialized themselves. Yeah. And curiosity for us is actually, uh, it has become more of a limited uh, limited set. You know, 50,000 years ago, Homo sapiens in African savannah, uh, their curiosity was a much broader set of, of items, yeah. right? Yeah. They, they are starting with no apps they could see or, or, or uh, conceive. Yeah. Uh, whereas a modern human is already starting with a bundle of apps and, you know, many of them they don't like, many of them they have discarded. Yeah. And so the curiosity the modern human is exhibiting is a very, very limited set, I would say. No, no, I, let me push back <laughs> against that. Okay, um, yeah. Which is that, yes, there's one way to look at it, but the other way to look at it is that primitive human couldn't ask such interesting questions, right? Remember, mm -hmm. they didn't know that there are brains. So they couldn't have the conversation that now we're having about how does the brain work, right? right. So, right. so that's the thing. I mean, knowledge builds on itself and more knowledge begets knowledge and begets new curiosities. Um, so in a sense, we are more curious. We, we can be more curious than a modern human. I mean, look, um, look, so 
so so maybe you're thinking like the the um you know somebody like leonardo da vinci or during the renaissance in uh, renaissance mm -hmm. in in, uh, in europe right uh, right i mean it's we're all taught that those people were polymaths right? right and people there was no such thing as a scientist so science and philosophy was the same so a thinking person was interested in many many things uh, by definition um, uh, and and it's it's true that today we specialize much more uh, but at the same time I mean would you want to live if you had a choice on, of when to live <laughs> right yeah. would, would you want to be born like during the Renaissance in in Europe or would you want to be born today even even Okay, so there's obvious that, you know, the standard of living and life expectancy, but even beyond that, like from the pure point of being interested in things, of interest and not mm. being bored, I would still want to be born today because there's so much more I know, there's so much more I can investigate and so much easier. Yeah, it's a sort of a semantic question. Um, you know, so, so like you say, that the number of paths we can take today is substantially more than the number of paths that were available to somebody, let's say, uh, 50,000 years ago or even 5,000 years ago, yeah. right? But uh, the paths that were available to a human 5,000 years ago were, I would say, in some sense, deeper. And so, so we have broad optionality today. Yeah. Um, but those paths, you know, we already starting from a point of lot of information, lot of knowledge. Yeah. There is so much we can go, you know, so, so we can select, uh, you know, one out of that uh, 100,000 paths available to yeah. us. But the depth there is still somewhat limited in some ways. Yeah, I, yeah, I would say that now... Today, uh, yeah. like back then, I think that that was also the case hundreds and thousands of years ago with people. It's really up to the person to generate curiosity. And mm. if you don't, if you're not an active generator and if you're not engaging in that process where you remind yourself of the questions and, and, and really engage with the question and expend some effort to investigate it, if you don't do that, uh, you're going to be bored, I, or you're going to be bored. You, you, you might not, maybe not bored, but you're going to just lead a routine life. And you could lose it, right? Uh, could you lose it, Jackie, from a neuroscience perspective if you don't use curiosity? Yeah. You, I think yeah. that you can. I think that you can. And I think that it goes to that. I mean, it really is a habit of mind of how you go, how you think of yourself and how you, the, your routine, the, like the routine of mental activity. And I think that some, you could either choose to routinely ask questions and routinely generate interest in your, from yourself, from within. Um, or you could choose to just live a routine life and not ask questions and just do the minimum to you know, succeed, and you could succeed without being very curious. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I want to I want to close with uh, one of you know your recent paper. Uh, reward uncertainty asymmetrically affects information transmission. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. With uh, within the monkey brain. Yeah. So, so so what do you mean? So, so two things: reward uncertainty asymmetrically affects information transmission. What does it mean? Uh, so asymmetrically um, uh, means that um, okay, so. Okay, this is a bit of a, a neural jargon, um, right? So I have <laughs> yeah. to make a reference to the brain. So what I meant is information transmission within the brain. Um, yeah. So we think about the brain. So, you know, the frontal part of the brain is thought to be, uh, is thought to provide what we call top-down control. In other words, it just, you, you have some knowledge about what you should be doing. The, you have a prediction and then the brain kind of says, you know, just act based on your prediction because I know what's happening. So just I'm telling you top down what to do. Uh, what we showed in, and, and then you can contrast that with a situation in which the top, the frontal part is uncertain. And it says, oh, I don't have a good prediction. I don't know what to do. And in that case, what you should do is you, you, should, you should process information more in a bottom up fashion. In other words, let the information come in from the environment, from outside, and kind of tell you what to do because the top down is not there, doesn't know. So that's more of a bottom up. So what we found in that paper is that if, if you put monkeys in conditions of uncertainty, um, we have a way of measuring the information flow, um, the, uh, which, which area influences the other. And we found that in, if we put the monkey in conditions of uncertainty, then it's more of a bottom-up pattern of, of influence. So the, the earlier areas influence more the frontal part of the brain if there's uncertainty. If there's no uncertainty, it goes the other way. The frontal part influences the earlier areas more. Oh, yeah, that, that's so interesting. So you could actually see this, um, certain parts of the brain, um, uh, lighting up in different um, absolutely yes yeah. so there well see that's another one fascinating things that we can do today <laughs> is uh, record and we can record the activity of individual neurons inside the brain um, so we can listen to what they're telling each other um, and and this is the method that we used and in this paper we recorded from two parts of the brain one er earlier area and one in the frontal cortex so we could kind of see how they talk to each other and who influences who. So, yeah. And that's a normal brain. Yes, um, normal. So do we see sort of uh, brain diseases where the, the top-down process, you know, always works uh, even in the presence of uncertainty? Oh, uh, that's a fascinating question. I don't actually... Uh, um, yeah. The reason I yeah. ask, mm -hmm. is, um, I don't know what the right term would be, but uh, we can see mm -hmm. people who, um, who, who, who always, who have no confusion, so to speak, as to what the next yes. decision is. Yes, even when they, even though they should have confusion, <laughs> <You> put, <laughs> right? right? Right. You put them in any situation, they will just go do yes. whatever, right? Yes. Um, Yes, I think that, yes, I think that that certainly happens. 
Um, and I think that what's happening there is that um, many people have what's called an aversion to uncertainty. So, so, so it, yeah. this is a, an interesting point. I think from what do we know now, uncertainty is signaled by these chemicals. Um, that's, one of them, I think, is norepinephrine. And the, the norepinephrine generates a state of arousal. So what you feel when you feel uncertainty, and it's kind of like a buzz. You know, you, you wake up, your 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 more arousal is bigger. The, your pupil dilates, so you you know you let more light in. Um, and and there's also anxiety associated with that. I mean, emotionally, you feel that state as a you know it could be pleasant, but it could also be aversive because norepinephrine also right. generates anxiety. So, um, so I think that what happens in many people, maybe uh, uncertainty is, is a bit aversive. And so, the, so that could be a motive to kind of ignore it um, and act as if we don't have uncertainty. You know, so mm -hmm. then, then you just make some prediction. It may be wrong, but you just, it helps you to avoid uncertainty or the perception of uncertainty, right? Right, right. So the brain could perceive that sort of a painful <laughs> process, you know, the presence of yes. uncertainty. And so to go bottom up, it takes time. Uh, the results are highly yes. uncertain. So it doesn't engage in that process. It's a fascinating thing because uh, Jackie, we see the same thing in organizations. Yes. Um, organizations are a bit like a brain, right? The way it's structured, the way it makes yes. decisions, adult decisions are, you know, yes. implemented. And um, and there are different, you know, different types of organizations, and they make decisions uh, differently under stress, and you know, under routine conditions. And um, and I, I was wondering if. You know, like you said, you know, the, the brain could be doing that. And and I don't know if that could be considered a disease condition, in which case it could be treated potentially. Yeah. So I don't know much about organizational behavior, um, but um, I, I, I mean, I think so. I think if we understand that uncertainty, um, it's a state that could be aversive or could be attractive. So we could use uncertainty as an opportunity. And I think it gets back to curiosity. We could use uncertainty as an opportunity to learn. Uh, or we could, you know, emphasize, be more sensitive to their, its aversive properties and avoid it. Um, and I think that, I think that it's certainly something that could be trained because, um, be, um, you know, it's just the same way. I mean, we could teach kids to um, uh, to tolerate uncertainty or to tolerate errors, to not be afraid to get a bad grade or to not be afraid to challenge themselves, to not not be afraid of failure. Right? To to teach them that that that's part of the process. Um, and and I think that if we could teach kids, we could teach also. CEOs, maybe I don't know. Maybe the kids are better learners. I don't know what you can teach CEOs. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the question there is, um, 
there's a timing question, you know, so the goes back to education, as yeah. we discussed, if the conditions are set, let's say before the age 10, uh, what I mean by initial conditions are the processes that they use to, to gather information, analyze yeah. information. If processes are set, for, for instance, you know, I grew up in India uh, and many of the Asian education systems uh, tend to focus a lot on exams and yeah. content and much less yeah. on process, right? So, so, so I don't know if there is any data that says, you know, there's a timing issue yeah. that this has to be done very early in the, in the education process. Yeah, I mean, I doubt that things are totally set by age 10. Uh -huh. I think that that things can change, but but I I think it would be really good to I, to introduce a reward system that actually rewards kids for for failing, for challenging themselves, and tolerating errors. Um, I think we don't do enough of that. I really think we don't do enough of that. Um, you know, like, so if you get a hundred, if you get a straight A student, I would say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take off some points for getting a straight A because that tells me you didn't challenge yourself <laughs> enough. Seriously. Right. And then right. I would, and, and it's an extended teaching process, right? Because then you have to teach kids to, let's say you do challenge yourself and you fail and you feel bad. And you have to uh, teach people how to not feel bad about themselves, how to really reframe a failure as, as a good thing. Um, I think, and I, I think we really should be doing more of that and not just with kids, I think at many other levels. And I think that pushing people to fail from time to time, you know, would make them more humble, first of all would avoid a lot of arrogance, like people who succeed too much become arrogant. Mm. And I think, and what arrogance is, is they lose a sense of how little they actually know. Because they, because they only live in that area where they always do well, they forget how much it is that they don't know. So I think it would be really mm. healthy to teach, to, to, to do more, like more of this in school, but also in organizations, you know, politicians are notorious. If somebody could do this with some of our politicians, uh, you know, oh my God, world of- That's a lost cause, Jack. That's a lost cause. Right, exactly. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe eventually, maybe not in our lifetime, but- <laughs> Maybe event, maybe maybe we can just start in schools and CEOs, and then let's see where that goes. Okay. Yeah, right. That would be a start. Ex yeah, this has been great, Jackie. Thanks so much All for right. spending time Thank with me. Thank you so much. It's been a lot of thanks. And good. All right. Good luck Thank in the you. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.